Europe Out Loud, a podcast about Europe's history, culture, and civilization. Brought to you by the Martin Center with Federico Reo. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Europe Out Loud, the Martin Center podcast series that tries to bring, to bring European history, culture, and civilization to bear on problems of contemporary EU politics. Today, we decided to discuss briefly the status and importance of culture and heritage as such in the European Union, and to argue that a stronger attention of uh, the EU and a stronger place uh, of culture and heritage in EU policies would be justified, that the EU could do more and should step up its action in this important field. But perhaps it is best to start from uh, the definition of cultural heritage. What do we mean by cultural heritage? And I think we can go with a, with a simple definition of cultural heritage as everything a group or society has inherited from past generations and that it deems of value. This it deems of value is important because it signals the fact that not everything we have inherited from past generations is heritage. In order to be heritage, it should be something that we uh, think contributes to defining our way of being, our identity as a group, as a society. Now, this can be a variety of different types of things. It can be tangible heritage, uh, things like buildings, monuments, books, works of art. It can be very intangible things like folklore, uh, traditions, languages, dialects. It can be even natural heritage. Uh, think about the beautiful landscapes or, or even biodiversity, uh, so much of which we have lost due to climate change in the last few uh, decades, in the last half century, really. So the EU is already involved in this field. There are a number of symbolic uh, um, and important activities and policies that it is involved in. I could mention here the European Heritage Awards, for example, the European Heritage Days, uh, the European Heritage Label, and even the European Year of Cultural Heritage, which which was a success, a significant success a couple of years ago. Um, but arguably, and this is the main argument of the podcast, more can be done, more should be done also in light of the great challenges to which our continent's heritage has been exposed in the last couple of decades. So let me give you some reasons for that. The first reason is that, in fact, we tend to overlook it, but culture and heritage are important EU values according to the treaties. This is uh, often neglected, but there are important provisions of the treaties giving great prominence to uh, cultural heritage. Let me mention, uh, let me start maybe from uh, the common provisions. So the provisions of the treaty that have a more programmatic um, nature. The preamble of the Treaty on European Union is modified by the Lisbon Treaty. Uh, so the, the, the very beginning, if you want, of the treaty uh, refers to drawing inspiration from the cultural, religious and humanist inheritance of Europe. If you then read further a little bit, you go to Article 3, which is a very central article in which some of the key aims of the EU are uh, defined. And um, uh, it is said that one of the, of the EU's key aims is to respect its rich cultural and linguistic diversity and ensure that Europe's cultural heritage is safeguarded and announced. And this is just to mention a few common provisions. When we look at more policy-focused provisions, we find the same prominence. And here I could quote, particularly I should quote, Article 167 of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union, the states, and I quote again, that the EU must contribute to the flowering of the cultures of the member states 
while respecting their national and regional diversity and bringing the common cultural heritage to the fore. Um, there is even in the same article a provision stating that the Union shall take cultural aspects into account in its action under other provisions of the treaties, in particular in order to respect and to promote the diversity of its cultures. And this is an important provision because it, it is what has been called a cultural mainstreaming clause, meaning that it mandates uh, the EU to incorporate the heritage and the cultural dimension in all uh, EU policies. So there, 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 is, uh, there must be a regard to cultural diversity in all EU policies. So uh, this is just to say that the status of culture and heritage in the EU treaties is very uh, important and probably um, the, the commitment of current EU policies to it is below potential, is below what the treaties would uh, um, uh, allow and would perhaps even require. I move to my second reason, which is a little bit more pragmatic. The first is almost a legal, I would say, uh, or uh, treaty-based argument. The second reason is that cultural heritage has been exposed over the last uh, decade to a very significant number of challenges that uh, have taken on an almost existential dimension by, by now. Uh, the first obvious one is budgetary cuts. We are coming out of a decade of very heavy uh, financial retrenchment, retrenchment sorry, um, multiple uh, financial and economic crises, you know, the global financial crisis, the euro crisis, more recently, of course, COVID-19, which has had devastating economic consequences. Now, the fact is that when governments are short of money, they don't cut, obviously, and, and, and rightly, they don't cut basic services, they tend to slash budgets for culture and the heritage. And this has taken a big toll, especially, but not only, in um, the countries that have been um, uh, most hardly hit by the crisis, the country of the Mediterranean, uh, countries like Greece, Italy, um, Spain, even France, which happened to be not only uh, the most hardly hit by some of the economic crises of the last years, but also some with the, uh, some of the countries with the richest uh, cultural heritage. So that's one aspect of the of the crisis that we have been facing. Um, another important neglected challenge is actually climate change. People tend to forget that climate change as a massive heritage uh, dimension. We have now forecasts telling us, for example, that 75% of the sites in the Mediterranean basin are at risk of flooding due to rising sea levels. Um, other forecasts are telling us that 86% of those sites, so uh, cultural heritage sites in the Mediterranean, are also at risk of erosion, so not only at risk of flooding. This is, this is of course, massive numbers. Uh, some of the um, images of cultural destruction that are brought about by uh, financial cuts and, um, and climate change are very uh, clear to our eyes. Uh, uh, let's think about Pompeii, this uh, magnificent Roman city uh, close to Naples that was buried under the ashes of the Vesuvium, uh, the Vesuvium after after um, uh, an eruption. Um, or let's think about Venice. Everyone knows Venice. Well, Venice had been sinking ten uh, centimeters into the Adriatic Sea over the last century, and and this is uh, this is going on. Uh, it would be a mistake, by the way, to think that this is just limited to the Mediterranean countries, because the problem is much broader than that. Uh, the Netherlands, you know, the important artistic cities of the Netherlands might be underwater uh, in a couple of decades. Utrecht, Amsterdam, um, The Hague, uh, Rotterdam, and so on. Even in countries which are more, say, in the interland of Europe, uh, take the Czech Republic, there have been uh, detected a very massive increase in the rainfall that has had negative consequences, has damaged cultural heritage. For example, in central Prague, in a couple of occasions over the last uh, 
20 years. These many challenges are another important reason why there is a strong case, I think, for the EU to step up its action and to support the member states in defending cultural heritage. The third reason is, I would say, a more cultural political, and it is the the change in the politics of cultural heritage. Over the last decade and even more, we have seen the rise of Eurosceptic right-wing populism in a number, well, really across the European Union, and it is a fact that um, the claim to be standing up, to be protecting a threatened cultural heritage uh, at the national and regional level often is at the heart of the political rhetoric, uh, of the very Eurosceptic, I should add, political rhetoric of these movements. We can think about uh, the centrality, for, exa- for example, of Jeanne d'Arc and French history in the rhetoric, in the political discourse of the Rassemblement National in uh, in France, uh, or we can we can mention the, the insistence on Danish identity of the Danish People's Party, or even the obsession with ancient Greek civilization or Golden Dawn in uh, in Greece. So the evocation of a threatened national heritage is at the heart of this process political uh, discourse, and this is unfortunately accompanied by a ne- very negative rhetoric uh, about European integration. Now, in light of the provisions of the treaties that I mentioned before, and the centrality, the cultural diversity, and the heritage as in the EU treaties, of course, this is nonsense. This is um, totally unjustified. What has happened, however, and this is a fact since the the 1990s, and particularly in the last decade, is that there has been a transformation in the concept of cultural diversity that is at the heart of EU cultural policies. uh, What do I mean by that? Until the 1990s, uh, cultural diversity in EU cultural policies mainly refer to diversity of national cultures within a European cultural unity. And this unity was, of course, meant to be manifested in a common heritage. So we can see that uh, cultural diversity and heritage in this conception were two sides of the same coin. Since the 1990s, and for, for perfectly justified and good reasons, because our societies have transformed, have changed, uh, the notion of cultural diversity has transformed um, and it has come to mean much more diversity within the European societies, between each individual European societies, due to migratory flows and multi-ethnic populations. And this different conception, shall we say more progressive conception of diversity, has progressively replaced uh, the older conception, heritage-based uh, conception of diversity, at the heart of EU cultural policies, and that's completely marginalized, or mostly marginalized, I will say, the heritage dimension. So I think what is important for the EU is to rebalance, uh, the, to redress the balance between these two dimensions, which are both equally important. And in this sense, strengthening the, uh, the heritage dimension can be a step in the right direction, because it will mean celebrating and protecting uh, the specific national and regional historical heritage of the European states at the European level. And I think politically this could send also a powerful signal that the Union is close to uh, the um, heritage and the identity of its um, member states and its member region. Now, concretely, what does it mean? What could the EU do just before I move to my conclusion? Um, well, I would say I would mention essentially three things. Uh, the first thing that needs to be done is to uh, sort of make available um, a, a significant amount of funding to secure, to refurbish, to restructure uh, the many sites across the Union which are now threatened with crumbling, with uh, uh, decay, and so on and so forth. 
And um, one possibility to achieve that would be to create a European Heritage Fund, it could be called like that, within uh, the EU budget, whose purpose would be precisely to rescue heritage uh, across the Union that is threatened. This would uh, have to be dedicated not to the most iconic sites. This is an important detail. We are not talking only or even mainly about the Parthenon or the Colosseum or Notre Dame in Paris. We are talking about the many forgotten little sites that are neglected, that are abandoned, and they do not receive the same amount of media attention, but they nonetheless could benefit immensely from European support. So that's one aspect, one thing that can be done. Another thing that, that probably has to be done is to finance the transition, the modernization of the whole culture and heritage sector, which mostly relies on a very old-fashioned business model that has been very heavily hit now by uh, COVID-19, simply because it is a very, very much based on uh, tourists, um, visitors, uh, visitors' fees, let's say. And this has meant that with the, with the uh, stop of the flow of tourists, um, the, the, this, uh, these uh, sites and these uh, monuments have been facing significant financial difficulties. So they have to modernize, they have to go digital, they, have, they are one of the sectors, in fact, in which tradition and modernity, you know, can be combined, can be married uh, most happily. And here the EU can, can lend a hand in this direction. And maybe the, the last thing that I would mention, there are many other potential things, but let me mention one last important thing that the EU could do. One of the flagship programs of this commission, of the von der Leyen Commission, is the European Green Deal. Now, as I have said, there is a very strong heritage dimension in uh, uh, climate change. So if uh, the commission could reinforce the heritage dimension of the Green Deal, and maybe specifically dedicate some of the Green Deal money to addressing the the heritage-related problems uh, created by climate change, that would be, I think, a very important signal and a very important way to redress the balance of EU cultural policies in the direction that I was saying earlier. So I come to my conclusion, which really is about restating that now that the Union is strengthening itself in many ways and that it is really making many steps in the direction of becoming a consolidated political union, it will need to, to be successful in this, uh, in this process to nurture a shared historical horizon, because there is no stable, viable political union without a shared historical narrative and a shared historical horizon. In a continent like ours, which is characterized by the diversity of its cultures, of its languages, of its traditions, this shared historical horizon can only be constructed if the union step up its action in being seen as a protector, as a as a as a force nurturing the culture and the heritage of each different country, of each different region uh, that exists um, in its in its bosom, and I would um, end. I would like to end this this short um, reflection by quoting the first ever document by any EU institution to deal with the topic of cultural heritage which is a 1974 uh, European Parliament report on the subject, drafted very symbolically, perhaps, by Lady Diana Ellis, who was a, a, um, a Brit. Of course, it's, it's quite something to be, to be mentioning that at the eve of, uh, of uh, Brexit, which is supposed to happen in uh, less than two weeks. And uh, Lady Diana Ellis defined cultural heritage as the wealth that transcends all political parties, all national frontiers, and all centuries, a cultural heritage which brings a deeper value and meaning to our daily lives beyond the economic, financial, 
and material considerations which saw Bisetta. He could have been written, I think, today in a time of crisis that is comparable, if not worse, in many ways to the 1970s. And I think we should keep it in mind when discussing heritage problems in the future. Thank you very much for your attention and for listening to this podcast. That was today's episode of Europe Out Loud. Subscribe to our podcasts for more.